Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hey, so this is not an interview with F. Paul Wilson. This is just a discussion. It was not designed to be an interview. So the format is a little strange. What happened was I was teaching a class on writing horror novels with some other San Diego horror authors at the Horrible Imaginings Film Fest. And I asked uh, Paul if I could talk to him about his outlining process and record it. So this is just um, me nerding out on one of my, with one of my favorite authors about his two series and how he structured and wrote them. So um, big Repairman Jack fans, you'll really enjoy this. Anyways, F. Paul Wilson. So the structure of the Repairman Jack novels are mostly centered around days. And Legacy starts on a Friday, and I wondered if you structured and the novels by days or chapters or both, because it seems like there's two levels to the structure. And did you do that outlining, or is well, just I'm interested in that concept right there. Well, with a a book like Legacies, I will usually and. You know, you can argue back and forth which is story and which is plot. But I will usually, with something that intricate, I'll do a timeline. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything that happened from the time Alicia's father started the abuse to his invention to him heading over to Japan to the, the plane crash... Everything will be in chronological order all the way up to and through the, the story I'm writing. The, so to me, that's the story. Mm-hmm. And then the plot is how I tell that story. And so um, so the, the story starts with you know, Alicia's lawyer being killed. Mm-hmm. And so the plot is, you know, what's so important about this house? And that's the mystery that has to be unraveled. Um, I like to use days, basically because there are books I've, you know, it became a thing with the Repairman Jack books. They all go by day. And I found that a very convenient way to write because... I've read books where I'm not sure how long ago did this happen or that happen. And um, if I put the days at, if I just tell you the story day by day by day, um, and I can use flashbacks if I wish, but if I, if I sequence it that way, I don't think the, the reader continues to follow the story and has a grasp of, of the time that's passing. So a lot can happen in one day and someday, uh, Another day, very little will happen. But the thing is, you realize that time has passed. And also, the, you know, the things that you're allowed to do or you're able to do as a character are often 
dictated by the day of the week. You know, certain things won't be available to you on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so it's good to know that it's a Sunday. Right. And it also can add plot complications. So, you know, this place isn't open on Sunday. Well, I got to get in there. Now I have to break in. Right. And I remember, so, I remember references to Jets games, uh, of course, Jets games, um, in, in parts that took place on Sunday. And it really put me into, like, what was going on as a football fan, too, you know. Um, right, you're a Chargers fan, right? Right, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, so I saw that definitely working with the, the day structure. Did you start that with the tomb, or was it Legacies that kicked that off? I no, the tomb, the tomb uh, is, is done with, uh, by days also. Um, as, I, as I've often said, uh, you know, I, Robert Ludlum was a big influence. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I'd get lost in his books as to well, how much time has passed. Um, and so I, I decided when I um, wrote the tomb that I, I just lay it out for the reader. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you, want, you want to do everything you can to keep the reader in the story. When, when they have to stop and say, oh, wait a minute, what day is this? How many days have passed since that last thing happened? Um, they're out of the story. Mm-hmm. If they know it's a Tuesday um, and something happened in the, in the past in the story that was you know, while the Jets were playing or whatever, they know, okay, that was a Sunday. Right. Uh, okay. And, and, and they're oriented. I, I think that's important that the, the reader not be a- asking questions about how much time has passed because then they're not thinking about the story. You know, they're questioning things. So did you, do you outline, you do the, t- the timeline, but then do you, within the days, then do you break it down by the, like the chapters within the days? Because I used to do, and, and with Legacies, it was um, a very definite, detailed outline. Whose point of view is this scene and that type of thing? I, I don't do that much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then, I was still, well, maybe no, I, I, I had cut back my practice by, by mm-hmm. 1997. But um, I was still in, in the groove of not wanting to have to go back and rewrite. So I would lay out everything. And it's very important in a thriller, I think, to have some sort of an outline. Uh, Even if it's just like what I do now is a list of story beats. Mm -hmm. Not really detailed at all, but, you know, bang, this happens, then this happens, then this happens. Um, Because timing your reveals... And your twists is very important to a thriller because you have to know where everyone is and, and where they are in, in their knowledge of the story and then you reveal something to them. Uh, it, it has to be coordinated with what everybody else knows too. So timing those reveals is very hard to do when you're, when you're writing by the seat of your pants unless you're going to go back and do a lot of rewriting. Right. I do have questions about that later. Okay. But um but that saves your rewriting as far as I'm as I'm concerned. Yeah. And and for me um and the book that I'm 
the novel of my own that I'm using the outline to kind of teach my um, skinhead werewolf novel, Boot Boys of the Wolf Reich, and a lot of my outline was was literally just bullet points for the chapter, like, and and I really get bothered when people say that outlining is soulless because you're there's still a lot you're discovering about the story. You know, just because you looked at a map doesn't mean you've understood what it means to walk in a city, right? And that's, I mean, I'm preaching, I know, but... Uh. No, no, I mean, um, it, it's, there's a lot of bullshit out there. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, the, the story is, you know, if you outline it, suddenly it's, it's not organic. Um, you are presenting something to a reader. And they come to it with a certain ex- expectation that you're going to give them their money's worth mm-hmm. and that there's going to be a certain level of quality there, not just to the writing, but also to the storytelling. And whatever works for you to do the best job is, is what you should do. Um, I've read, you know, the, we've read plenty of books that we know they were written by the seat of the pants because they, they, they have crummy endings. Right, right. Because um, the author started off with not knowing how he was going to end it, and then when he got to the end, he didn't know what to do. Or, um, some, or sometimes you get books that are, where they have good endings and good beginnings but are really bloated and weird in the middle um, because they get lost getting to the... They may know where they're going, but... Well, that's get, it. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, there are plenty of... There are authors who are seat-of-the-pants authors who do great jobs, like Joe Lansdale. Right. He never outlines. I don't know how he does it. Um, right. But, you know, whatever works for you, and you should... And no one should be looking down their nose and saying, you know, it's not organic or it's going to lose its soul... Right. If you actually figured out where it's going to go, I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, advance where it's going to go. I mean, you have an obligation to the readers to give them a good story. And if you need to know where it's going to go to do that, then by all means, do it. Right. Okay, so um, just a, a little bit about the three-act structure. Do you Do you map ahead of time, like, three-act structure, or is it just, is it, kind of in the background when you're working on an outline. I don't know what three-act structure is. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, because you're right. I think I, a lot of your I books don't to, have to. That. You know, it's, it's a Hollywood thing. Right. Um, and I can, I can look at a movie and say, okay, uh, it's time for the turnaround now. It's time for the dark moment. Here it comes. There it is. Right. Now we turn it around. I mean, I... I I don't think in those terms. Um, I, I I usually, st- you know, start off knowing the end mm-hmm. and how's the coolest way I'm going to get there, and um, and I, I I may have six ten acts. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, it, I think some of, um, for example, I think. Um, like a lot of the adversary books like have a little bit less structure than Repairman Jack being that you kind of you set up 
a little bit of a template for those books. So being that they're a series, but at the same time, I think, um, you know, obviously they, 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 there's differences in the different books. Like for example, I know I've told you before that Harbinger's is my favorite Repairman Jack book. And one of the reasons why I like Harbinger's is because the whole book is a reversal. Like the entire thing is a reversal on the whole series. Right. And that's one of the reasons why. And so it's funny because I cannot think of Harbinger's outside of the rest of the series. And I also can't really think of it in that three-act structure because it's, it's like an act in a greater story. It's like a third act almost. But it's weird because it's like book 10 or 11, I think. But it's book 10. Yeah. I mean, and I'll tell you this, and I just got to give you this compliment while well, well, I got you here. Uh, Harbinger's is still to this day one of the best gut punches I've ever read in a book. So um, Yes, it's a gut punch for the whole series so far. Right, right. And I, <laughs> yeah, and I really appreciate that. Okay, so my process... Um, when I'm outlining is I kind of sit in the chair and I run the novel like a movie in my head. And then I just kind of sketch bullet points. And then on the second pass of the outline, I add chapters and stuff that I can check off. Sometimes I don't write chapter numbers. Sometimes I do, but I'm wondering, you kind of already answered this with the timeline process. So the timeline is the first part of your process. Um, do you run it like a movie in your head when you're doing the timeline or, or, how, how does that process work? Um, the timeline is just what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't run that like a movie because that ne- doesn't necessarily have much drama. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very historical. It's like I've done research and this is what I learned. Um, and that's when I do my research and I'll, I'll pull out historical moments and stick them in the timeline uh, I mean, I just did one for a book I, I'm planning in the future. I just did a, an intricate timeline line that runs from uh, the end of World War II up to the present time. And it's got a lot of historical moments in there, like Operation Paperclip and, and things like that that were real. And then, um, and locations that are real, like, you know, the White Sands mm-hmm. testing sites. But then there's the fiction in, in there, too. and But it gives me a kind of a, oh, you know, it, it gives it historical depth, and it makes it more real to me, and then I can convey that reality to the reader, because now I, I'm, I'm believing this timeline I've invented mm-hmm. and the events that, that went in there, so I'm believing it. I've got, you know, I put myself in that world, and that's what happened. And now I can I can talk about it, and I can reveal it, and I can just keep pulling out little pieces, saying, "Oh, look what happened here. What does this mean?" And that type of thing. So it it becomes a real history to me. Mm-hmm. Um, not all, all all of my books have that deep history. Um, Panacea. Uh, I was actually going to do flashbacks. I mean, I, I had a timeline mm-hmm. uh, scenario in that, going back to the sixth century, and I was going to show scenes from the sixth century, and 
it, turned, it looked like you know, it just turned out that the book was going to be too long if I if I did that, and so I I, I had some character synopsize it, but again it it was very real in my head that this is what had happened, and and I could have characters reference it and make it sound real to me and then obviously to the reader because you've got to believe it first before you can make the reader believe it. Mm-hmm. Well, and, okay, so, oh, wow, you just really teased me on, on what you're writing next. So do you, how often did you have to reference the secret history timeline? I mean, I'm, I suppose you had to, like, really keep track of the whole timeline dating back to its connections to Black Wind, to everything, with, with every book in the secret history that you wrote. You, I mean, I'm sure that was, had to be really a brutally intense timeline you had to keep track of. Um, well, you know, I, I didn't start off thinking of it that way. <laughs> That's that, true. <laughs> that they were connected. It, it, the connection just started happening later on. And um, I just started making lists of, of where the books fit in to this type of thing. And, you know, Blackwind really wasn't part of it at all until... Out of the sword. Right? And to buy the sword, I, the sword, I yeah. wanted to... Um, uh, I wanted to... I, I, that katana, uh, I started reading about um, <clears throat> Massimuni and, and those, those sword makers. I said, oh, I want to use this. I said, holy crap, I got this sword back in Blackwind. <laughs> Let me bring it into the present. And, you know, bang, it sort of connects. And um, then all of a sudden, Blackwind was part of the secret history. It didn't start out that way. Right. That's where it ended up. Okay, so, um, uh, personally, I map out the major characters and write bios for each of the characters. It sounds like you kind of do that inside of the timeline, um, maybe. Not really. Okay, not really, but okay, so with it's really important in Repairman Jack that the side characters are the source of the peril most of the time. Yes. And it's so I'm wondering like how how much do you include like the background on Jack's dad, for example, with um, gateways or like the, the kind of the side characters like how much do you do you, do you do that in the outline or is that a part of the is that more a part of the writing process like, it's more a part of the writing process um, I I wanted you know Jack's father to be an ex-soldier and um, I wanted him to have been a, a sniper a guy who's killed people mm-hmm. but he doesn't want anybody to know. Right. And a lot of the old soldiers were like that. Um, They weren't necessarily proud of what they did. Um, And so he has his medals hidden away. And, you know, it's just one more thing for, you know, Jack thinks his father's just a, you know, uh, nerdy accountant. And he doesn't realize the guy's got a history um, you know, he's just dad. And 
just so like he, just like his sister and hosts too, right? Exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. Everybody's got their their secrets, um, but the, but those things develop as I'm writing. I mean, the characters develop as I'm writing because. Um, uh, Nabokov said that you know my characters are galley slaves. Mm-hmm. In other words, they do what he tells them to do, mm-hmm. um, and I, I I'm that way too. Uh, I was so glad when I read that quote by him because I was saying because you know you're supposed to let the characters tell the story, and um, for me that's bullshit. Right. Uh, it's my story. I'll tell it, and I'll tell you what to do, I, I, and I'll find out what I need you to do, and then I'll go back and I will rewrite you to be the kind of person who will do what my story needs you to do. And so I, I, my character sketches are just that, they're sketches. I do not, uh, I mean, right now I'm, I'm, I'm revising the sequel to Panacea, and it just occurred to me that for this character to function, this one character, this, this uh, animal trader, I have him as a Frenchman, a white Frenchman in Mozambique, and I'm saying, you know what? He's going to function a lot better if he's at least mixed race instead of a white guy because he, he's dealing with a lot of uh, native Africans there. And... Mozambique you know, used to be a, a Portuguese uh, colony, but it isn't anymore, and it's had a number of revolutions, and it's a, it's a very black country, where, whereas it used to be Portuguese. And so I've had him white through the whole you know, first draft and, and what I handed in, but now I'm thinking, no, he's going he's to fu- function a lot better as mixed race, so I have to change him. But that's to make him function better in the story. That's not, you know, I don't, I don't let the characters make decisions based on who they are. I make decisions based on what I need them to do. And I need him to be dealing with a bunch of, uh, at, least, at least two or three African natives. And they have to respect him in some degree. And he's, he's you know, if he looks like a, you know, a colonist, He's probably not going to have the kind of respect I need him to have from them. So, right now, just this this morning, I changed him. He's now <laughs> his mother was uh, an Algerian from uh, Oran, and his father was uh, uh, a a dock worker from uh, Marseille. So, well, that's all awesome. Well, all that's different story. That, that's going to be fun for me when I read that book and <laughs> you did that today. So, so let's get some nitty gritty on, on legacies because um, much like the keep, one of the things that makes the leg makes legacies just totally rock for me is the twist and misdirection, um, which that you did using the reader's expectations from the first book against them. Um, cause it's clear, I mean, I know, cause when I read it, the first 100 pages, um, and I don't read the back of plots of, of books because I, I try to go into books knowing as little as possible based on reading authors that I respect or series that I like. And so the first hundred pages, I was convinced that Legacies was a haunted house novel. 
and I think, or just I'm assuming that you were using the supernatural elements of the tomb and people expecting Repairman Jack to come back to a supernatural story, uh, basically against the reader to for misdirection. How much of the twist and the misdirection um, were you writing into the timeline and the outline that you had ahead of time? Did you know, was it like a point in the outline, like this is kind of where the reveal is going to happen? Um, you know, it, it started off... It, it's, it was the third book of a contract for medical thrillers. And I had already gotten quite tired of medical thrillers and writing them. Mm-hmm. And so I had this idea, and I guess you'd call it more of a, you know, a high-tech type of thriller, and it was about broadcast power and the, you know, the Tesla type of thing. And I said, well, Jack would be a perfect... Protagonist for this, but I'm supposed to do a medical thriller by contract. So that's why Alicia is a doctor. So Alicia, being a doctor, she hired him, and then I could say, Well, I got my medical element in there, and now I can go on and write the story I wanted to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I don't think my editor was fooled for a moment, but he liked the book. And so, actually, it was a she then. She liked the book, and uh, we went with it. Uh, So, and I decided this one, because it was going to be at least to be somewhat true to the contract, I I didn't want a supernatural element in it. So, um, uh, I, I used a few haunted house tropes, you know, to set things up, but, you know, I wasn't heading there at all. So, uh, so that wasn't necessarily a conscious decision, like to. It was conscious not to have any supernatural element in it. Okay. Um, and I, it was going to be almost a science fiction novel. Right. Uh, uh, well, because that's exactly when when I was reading it, I was just like, that was my first thought was, oh, this is Repairman Jack, and last time he fought this monster. And so, like, oh, this is going to be the Repairman Jack Haunted House novel, which, in a lot of ways, was more Haunted Air than, than, than this one. But again, that was Mr. I thought that was Misdirection, too. But, um... Are you there? Oops. Oh, my internet. What? And, um, so we were talking about the, the misdirection of legacies. Um, so did you, I guess, to get us back into what we were talking about, um, did, you, did you not originally plan this book as Repairman Jack in the beginning, or... Did that oh, yeah. There? I mean, as I said, when I got the idea for it, I, I, I knew Jack was, this is 14 years after the tomb. Um, 
I, I, I figure this would be perfect for, for, for Jack and I, I could bring him back for one book. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why it's, it's so unlike the rest of the series because I, I looked at it as just going to be another standalone. The tomb would be a standalone. You know, this would just be another book that happened to have the same character. And again, I, I, I was hesitant about a series. Right. So. Right. Well, um, so with the keep, um, was it? It seems like it had to. You had to have been consciously trying to trick people into thinking it was a vampire novel, right? I mean, like obviously, Absolutely. yeah, Absolutely. yeah. That Absolutely. time, that was a big red herring, right? And I and I the whole book, the the premise for the book for me to, that got it started was um, Chelsea uh, Quinn Yarbrough's uh, Hotel Transylvania where she had this good heroic vampire mm-hmm. and I said um, you know that was ridiculous because you know they're parasites they're an obligate parasite they really they really can't be the good guy and I said well wouldn't it be interesting if he, someone was pretending to be a good guy vampire because really what he was, not even pretending to be a good guy vampire, just pretending to be a vampire because what he really was was something so much worse. I said, well, you know, that, that one, you know, the, as I said, I was reading Ludlum. I'm saying, you know, that, that falls right into that type of territory. Yeah, and, you know, and if you've read the early Ludlum, Everybody was, you know, lying to everybody else. People were pretending to be someone they weren't, um, and you couldn't trust any anything that anybody said, as even to who they were or you know what they believed or, or whatever. And that type of paranoia, I said, well, oh, that's gonna that could work great with a horror novel, right? And so it just it just developed from there. And and I'm assuming that when you were because, I mean, that was... So, one of the things that I... Reasons why I tell people that outlining... And I know you've talked about this before in interviews, and I know we talked about it at Borderlands, is that outlining becomes so much more important for writers who have jobs and have things that they're doing that they might not be able to write every day. So they can't necessarily come back to the story. It's good to have, okay, this is where I'm at. This is where i got to go. And since the keep was so early on, I'm assuming um, a lot that that book as well was was heavily outlined and timelined. Um, did the timeline? I mean, you had to do timeline with history with World War II as well with Black Wind, but I'm sure the timeline was really important to the keep as well, right? Right. It, it's and, and that went back to to prehistory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I didn't in my timeline. I, I didn't go into what would what had happened in all those fifteen thousand years before um, the keep happened. But uh, I, again, yeah, you know, Glaken had to appear at a certain time. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, the warnings. You know, M- Molasar had to give warnings about him. 
uh, knowing he would be showing up. And so you weren't really sure, you weren't sure that, that Molasar was the bad guy, and you weren't sure that like, Blaken necessarily was the good guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, you could probably guess it, but he, he wasn't a knight in shining armor. And right. so, and then you had Molasar had actually gone and saved uh, Magda from, from those soldiers. So he, he did something good. And so, you know, I, I tried to keep you off balance as much as I could. And uh, eventually you'll learn that he, he, whatever good thing he did, it was basically just to uh, subvert uh, Magda's father, Professor, you know, uh, Professor Kuza. Mm-hmm. And it was all just trying to work on his soul and, and destroy his whole belief system. And so, uh, all of it, everything had to be timed just right, and so you need an outline for that. No, definitely. I don't see how you do that without an outline. No, I don't see how you would either. Now, the keep is interesting. Now, I'm thinking of Night World, and years later, and you're writing that. Um, do you hold on to your timelines, and were you able to use that? for the later books in the adversary cycle and repairman Jack, it seems like, you know, I probably had it somewhere, but you know, it wasn't digital. Mm-hmm. I mean, the keep was written, um, in 1980. And, um, I didn't have a computer then. I didn't buy a computer until the following year. Mm-hmm. I could afford one from, uh, my Apple II Plus. <laughs> right. Uh, but, uh, and even then, those, those old files are unreadable. So, I mean, I don't have uh, much. I, I did everything on, on the tomb pretty much on my Apple II. Uh, but those files are just, those files are gone. Right. So, I, I'm just talking from memory here, basically. Yeah, and you probably had so you had to reconstruct a timeline when you're doing night. Oh yeah, for night yeah. world definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know it's interesting because, you know, you know Stephen King is famously a pantser, and he like, uh, you know, had to hire Ben Vincent, for example, to help him with the Dark Tower because, and and needed somebody who who was a nerd for his work, and I'm, you know. I, I believe the secret history is every bit as complicated as the Dark Tower, if not more complicated. So I'm, I'm sure that you had to do a lot of fact-checking as you were going along, you know, back to the older books, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I didn't always do a good job. I have readers, you know, I have my nerdy readers too, and, and mm-hmm. they know the books better than I do. Right. And they, you know, they call me out, and you know, I, um, I you know, there, there's a fellow who's put up a compendium of, of stuff online, which is totally amazing amount of work. Um, pretty much all my all all the secret history, and um, plot summaries, character summaries. I mean, it just it's just an amazing right amount of work. Um, but I wish I'd had that, you know, when I was, you know, originally doing Night World because 
Um, and, and the original Night World was just summing up the preceding five adversary cycle books. The, the revised Night World had to include all of the Repairman Jack books, even including the Teenage Jack books, which... Um, Play heavily, yeah. Yeah, because there was, he, dis, he discovered things uh, under the, the Lodge building as a teenager that he had to go back and find again uh, in uh, the dark at the end. So, I mean, there's, everything is tied together. And he just, <laughs> I don't know how you do that without an outline, you know. Right, right. Okay, so I have two questions and then I'll let you go. And I really appreciate the time. Um, one, of, one of which, um, one of my favorite screenwriters is Shane Black. I love Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, all that. I think he's a, a fantastic screenwriter. And one of, the, one of his, like, concepts that he teaches, and I swear to God, I thought, I wasn't sure. The first time I heard it, I was like, you know what? I, I think Paul Wilson talked about that exact same concept at Borderlands, and I could be wrong. But he kept saying in this interview that storytelling is parallels and reversals. That, that at all times in your stories, you got to be thinking about parallels and reversals. And I wasn't sure if I was making it up in my head that, <laughs> that that's something that we talked about. But I always wondered, like, you know, is that the same concepts? Because parallels and reversals seem like the principle of Repairman Jack, like, throughout. Well, I never use those terms, but yeah, I, he, he's exactly right. Um, yeah, uh, he, he's right. I, I like his stuff, too. Right. Um, I, even some of his, his, his wackier offbeat stuff. He's, uh, uh, what was his most recent? Uh, the, the Nice Guys. What was it? The Nice Guys. I didn't see that. Yeah, it's, it's really it because, good. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it had it had some resonance with with certain certain things, um, but you know there were some other ones. Even that, what was it? What was it? The the one he did with Gina Davis was that the one? The last the long kiss good night. The long kiss good night. That was that. You know that was definitely parallels and reversals. It's all over the place. Yeah. Well, and it was funny because. I remember we had you and I had this interaction on Facebook a little while back because when I watched the first season of Luther, my first reaction was, that's F. Paul Wilson worthy plotting. And then I said to myself, I bet F. Paul Wilson is a big fan of that first season of Luther. And I asked you online, you, you, you said, oh yeah, <laughs> like that first season. But it was funny because that first season, the the parallels and reversals are a huge part also of that first season of Luther and uh, Neil Cross's writing in general, like his novels too, like um, work very well on a principle of parallels and reversals. But anyways, I, um, uh, I think it's part of, it's part of good storytelling really. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I, I just parallels and reversals have become a big thing for me and I, I just wanted to ask because I wasn't sure if we talked about that at Borderlands, but I sure not think so. I'm yeah, not, sure. not, not in those terms for sure. Yeah, so we probably talked about it with other phrases, but um, but, uh, but yeah, that's 
that's become a big thing for me and a huge part of the class that we're teaching that I'm teaching on the outlining is we're we're doing a huge section a big chunk of it on creating parallels and reversals and that's part of one of the things that I'm using legacies for and um, I'm going to be talking about harbingers as well um, and unfortunately spoiling <laughs> I might be spoiling it for a bunch of people but I think they need it as a teaching mechanism but well you know it's it's it, again it's all it's all setting things up too right and that's where an outline can help too because if you don't set it up you're not going to you know you're not going to get uh the impact that you want to get and you know i set up a spear has no branches through a number of books mm-hmm. and and probably people are saying what the hell is, what is that you know we keep right. hearing that and then you find out that you know the the power is supposed to be on his side has been wiping out his family because it wants to make him a weapon, and a spear has no branches. And when you when you you hear that in Harbingers, after, you know when if you come to Harbingers first, and some people have started with Harbingers, and I, I feel sorry for them because yeah, they, 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 they miss they that miss out. punch yeah. in the nose. Um, but when you hear that in Harbingers, you all of a sudden you realize, holy crap, this is what's been going on. Yeah. Well, and it's such a reversal of um, the hero's journey. And that's what's so awesome about Harbingers is because, um, you know, the hero's hooking up with the, the grand mission to save the day and hear the support network that he finally has behind him is the one who's behind, you know, taking out his, his loved ones. It's just great reversal. Um, and it's all built on, um, and that's what the parallels and reversals, because it's, it's built on the parallels that, of the hero's journey that you set up and within the entire series, but especially, like, leading into Harbingers. So, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, the, the thing is, you know, I'm always trying to subvert expectations. Um, mm-hmm. Even even the design of Jack, you know, he was he's the anti Jason Bourne guy with no training and and no history of, of special skills and special ops. And I I did that. I'm just done very much on purpose, just to subvert your expectations. And so whatever you're expecting. Yeah, I'm gonna to try to do something else. Mm-hmm. It yeah, and it's it comes out so well. Okay, so last um, question, and this is a nuts and bolts of of outlining. But do you have a method for maintaining various multiple POVs with a rhythm? Because for me, what what I found is that I have to structure my outlines almost like a song, where you have verse, verse, chorus, verse, verse, chorus. And I like to try and make sure that I'm spacing out the the rhythm of when we go back to each POV. And I feel like that's something you do, but because I, you, that you were an influence on me on that by reading your work. And I'm wondering if that's something you're doing consciously or, or unconsciously. Um, what I'm doing consciously is 
I'm asking, you know, who whose scene is this? Who has the most at stake? Who does it mean the most to? Who has the most emotions at stake here? Um, and that's whose scene I make. That's that's how I choose the point of view character. Um, and I, I don't set up a rhythm. And I mean, not consciously anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in, in Panacea, I I went through oh so much of the book with just one point of view. It was all lore, you know. Well, it was the, the, between the bad guy. Uh, Nelson and Laura, I would be shifting between those two, basically just to show you what each was doing. But Rick never has a a point of view scene until uh, he needs to kill a few people. And so, um, and I was con- consciously, I was thinking, I really should should get Rick in here because I'm waiting an awful long time to introduce him as a point of view character. But every time I came to a scene where he and Laura were together, it was always Laura's scene. And so uh, he went on for a long time without me getting into his head. I worried about that a little, but then I realized that, you know, Laura needed those scenes. She she's got a, a, a lot to deal with, and uh, Rick really isn't. Rick has just he's been given an assignment and he's he's following through on it, and so I don't really need to get in his head because he doesn't really he's not conflicted at all. Well, but Laura had all sorts of conflict, you know, through the, those opening chapters. So, uh-huh. well, I I think that's that's for me that's a deciding factor. You know, yeah. Who's, Sorry, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but oh, okay. w- but one of the things that I think is a principle of Repairman Jack is that in the sense of the parallels, a lot of the suspense is built um, with the shifting POV and, um, you know, providing details that maybe Jack doesn't know yet or, or you know, um, providing, because as you've said many times, like, a lot of the peril that you can put is on the side characters. So a lot of times um, that's the source or it just seems like to me that the, the, the shifting POVs and the parallels are, are, are very important to have in the outline and, and, and have them in the right place at the right time. It it helps to know. Um, But I mean, that's what uh, the, I think a really effective thriller has multiple points of view. I think you really need that because you know, in, a, in a mystery, nobody knows anymore. You know, nobody has the answer. Um, it's usually a single point of view, often private eye. And, and nobody knows more than the point of view character. The reader does not know any more than the... I shouldn't say nobody. I said the reader doesn't know any more than the point of view character. Um, In a multiple point of view thriller, the reader knows more. He doesn't know everything. But the reader knows more than any one of the characters because the reader is seeing what the other character is doing. And, you know, this character is moving this way and the other character is moving 
either consciously or unconsciously, toward uh, an impact. And that builds suspense. And, you know, who's going to come out on top on that thing? Or, or you know, you're hoping that, you know, the, the sympathetic character figures it out before, you know, catastrophe occurs. Um, so that's a great way of building suspense. And it also allows you multiple reveals because you've got more characters and so you can reveal certain things about these characters, things you didn't know, things that all of a sudden turn out to be important. Mm -hmm. And an outline really helps with that. It just uh, it puts everything together. In, and, and also, when you know where it's going, you can write to build to that scene. You know this scene is coming. You can write to build to it. If you really don't know what's coming next, how do you build toward that? Yeah. Um, I, I, I can't answer that question. I'd like to know what's coming. Every scene should build toward the next. And having, uh, even if it's just bullet points, as, as you said, um, you know what's coming next, so you can build toward it. You can set up anticipation. Yeah. But if you don't know what's coming next, how do you how do you set up anticipation? Well, and I took a class with uh, David Morrell once, and right. and he talked about building suspense is is like putting rungs on a ladder, and that you're climbing up, you know, and and each beat of suspense is like another rung on a ladder. So hey, I've taken up a ton of your time today. This has been super awesome geekiness for me because I I'm such an outline geek. Um, but is there anything you think I missed or something that in your years of teaching outlining at Borderlands that, um, that you really want me to hammer home to, to next generation? No, I, I, think, I think, I think you've got everything there. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think if there's something I would add. Um, it just, I, I, I. I think the, the, the best stories, I mean, I, you've probably heard me say this, you know, that, that the best stories have symmetry. Um, and reality does not have symmetry. You know, real life doesn't have symmetry. But really good, satisfying stories have symmetry. And that does not mean that everything tied up in bows at the end. But there is a feeling that you have been told a story. You haven't just had, you know, somebody's somebody's memoir read to you. That actually, the author put effort into this, and it goes back to Greek drama. You built you build up tension, dramatic tension, and then you blow it off, and that's called a catharsis. And a good story has that symmetry, and the symmetry allows for catharsis. And an outline allows you to have the most effective catharsis, and for me, yeah. I, and I'm I, I hate to to preach them that, that my way is the only way. Right. It's not, but it works for me. And I've seen a lot of books I don't like that I know were written without an outline. So you know, I think, especially if you're starting off, you really. You really should know where you're going through the story. I mean, I, all my outlines, I put, in, I put away. I don't even look at them. 
But until I come to a spot where I say, hey, wait, wait a minute, uh, what, what do I do here? Uh, and I pull it out then, and I look at, oh, I already solved that problem. This is what I do. And I put it back in, and then I, I write along. And my story never goes the way I outlined it, but it always ends up where I intended it to. So hmm. I sometimes take the scenic route, and uh, not the one I planned, but I do get there. So. Hmm. Well, yeah, and, and you're, it, it's funny, too, because uh, Brian Keene was here a couple weeks ago for um, at Mysterious Galaxies, and Brian and I were talking afterwards, and I, I was amazed when he told me he was a pantser because um, there was... Because, you know, I just read Pressure, and I thought it was... I, th- I, I just assumed he, he outlined it because it was pretty tightly plotted, and the same thing with Joe Lansdale, um, you know, I was just flabbergasted that that he doesn't outline because he plots so well. So there are some who, who, oh, can, yeah. who can do it. Um, but, you know, Brian and I also had a conversation about, you know, the times where he was, you know, admitting the, the books that he got lost on because, because he didn't. And, you know, he had to, you know, do things to try and, and fix those problems, but... You know, and and so you know, he and I had a, a really long conversation about outlining, and it was because um, he knew I was starting to develop this class, and and uh, yeah, it was just it was it is interesting to see when somebody can can do it. I don't know how they do it without it because you know I outline my day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Did I ever tell you my Rick McCammon story? No, but I'd love to hear that because he's you're my second favorite author in the world. He's my third <laughs> favorite living author. So uh, he's not he's not an outliner, right? And um, I was sitting on a, this is years and years and years ago when uh, probably before Boy's Life, um, and uh, we were on a panel together. And before the panel started, I said, "Well, what are you working on?" He said, "Well." Uh, he said, I just threw away three, 300 pages of, of a book, you know, and so here I am, part-time writer, and, and this is, this is, <laughs> this is the most awful thing I could imagine. Right. And I said, what's, what's wrong, what was wrong with it? He said, it just wasn't, it wasn't going uh, anywhere good. Um, and I said, well, didn't you, didn't you know that before you started? You know, he said, no, I said, no, I, I said, "Don't you outline?" And he said, "He said no. I, I I just I just go start off with some characters and write." And and you know this this stuck with me as as something I never ever wanted to happen to me. <laughs> right. But that's that's just you know especially when you, you when you're a part time writer to to have to throw away three hundred pages that's it's ah, yeah. inconceivable. You know? Well, and I'm sure those 300 pages were actually probably pretty awesome because it's Robert McCammon. So, um, well, yeah, I mean, Stephen King did the same thing with uh, The Cannibals, which eventually became Under the Dome, but that sat for 30 years, almost, unfinished, because he didn't know how to end it um, until he started it over again as Under the Dome, which, you know, is uh, mind-boggling to me, (laughs) you know, a story languish for thirty years and then find a solution. But yeah, I don't, and I don't see how you, you write that kind of volume of wordage um, <laughs> without a plan. 
Well, maybe that is how you write that, that kind of volume of wordage, because <laughs> right. you're really just sort of wandering around. And um, yeah. finally you get back on track. I mean, Peter Straub is like that, too. He's, he's yeah. very digressive in his, his plotting, and he'll just meander around. But he, you know, he considers that a strength. Yeah, totally. Well, hey, Actually, he's coming to Borderlands uh, this January. No way, Peter Straub. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, so. lucky class this year. Um, that's very cool. Um, well, I appreciate it, um, Paul. It's um, good talking to you. Yeah. No, I, I, dude, I love to geek out on on your outlines and structures because. 